Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In the late 18th century, tension in Ireland boiled over into a full-scale uprising as disaffected Catholics and some Protestants rose up to challenge the Anglican-dominated government of Ireland while calling for the creation of an Irish Republic like that in America or revolutionary France. Now, when this uprising was put down, Irish Republicans fled to Newfoundland, where they found a social, economical, and political climate ripe for agitation. While the island was spared some of the more violent conflicts between Catholics and Protestants, like that seen in Ireland, the tension between the two faiths continued to be a problematic reality in the British colony. While in Ireland, much of the tension was based around those who owned land and those who worked the land, in Newfoundland, Much of it was based around those who owned the fisheries and boats and those who worked in the fishing industry. In 1800, this tension boiled over in an attempted uprising centered around the key port city of St. John's. This is Season 7, Episode 15, Rise, Republic Rise, the United Irish Uprising in Newfoundland. book recommendation is titled The Irish in Newfoundland, 1600 to 1900, Their Trials, Tribulations, and Triumphs by Mike McCarthy, published in 1999 by Creative Press. This book paints a vivid picture of the Irish experience from the early days of anti-Catholic persecution, when a house could be burned to the ground simply because mass had been said there, to, by the turn of the 20th century, relative peace between Irish Roman Catholics and English Protestants. To understand the events of April 1800, we need to understand the broader context of English-Irish relations in the late 18th century. The last two decades of the 18th century were immensely challenging for Great Britain. 
the early 1780s saw them formally admit defeat in the American War of Independence. And by the 1790s, Great Britain was one of the major nations funding and fighting against the revolutionary forces of the new Republic of France. With both financial and military resources focused on revolutionary France, many in Ireland saw an opportunity to do away with British control of the island once and for all. Now, resistance to English and later British rule had been a constant feature of Irish life for nearly 700 years since the first Norman lords had attempted to conquer the island in the late 12th century. By the late 18th century, however, a complicated political, social, and economic situation had developed whereby Ireland had a form of parliamentary home rule but was not separate from the British crown. The tensions in Ireland are far too complex to explain in detail in this episode, but needless to say, the tensions revolved around two key aspects, the economy and religion. Economically speaking, tensions existed between the land-owning class and those who worked the land. Many, though certainly not all, of the landowners were Anglo-Irish Protestants, while most of those who worked the land were Irish Catholics. At the same time, Catholics within Great Britain and the broader British Empire suffered under fairly significant repression in terms of their civil and political rights as well as their economic opportunities. For instance, up until the latter quarter of the 18th century, Catholics were barred from holding political office as well as a number of professions. Now, Ireland's political situation by the end of the 18th century was surprisingly independent. Its parliament in Dublin had been subordinate to the parliament in London, which, since 1707, was the political center of both England and Scotland. But after 1782, the Irish Parliament was effectively legislatively independent from Parliament in London. However, it was dominated heavily, though not exclusively, by an Anglo-Irish Protestant elite. It's also important to note that the King of Great Britain, at this time the Hanoverian King George III, was also the King of Ireland. So Ireland was still subject to the authority of the British monarchy. In May of 1798, with the British distracted by revolutionary France, a rebellion broke out in Ireland led by the Society of United Irishmen, who sought to create an independent Irish Republic along the lines of the United States and France. While it would be easy to cast this as purely a Catholic Protestant issue, it was actually quite a bit more complex, with certain Protestant Irish groups, mainly Presbyterians, aligning themselves with Catholic rebels angry at the tight control of the Irish economy by a small Anglican elite group. Nonetheless, at the same time, the long history of Protestant domination of Catholics in Ireland was also a significant factor in this uprising. The rebellion itself actually gained some successes in the early stages, particularly focused around County Wexford in southeast Ireland. In fact, 
a French expeditionary force even landed in Ireland to support the rebels. But this force was defeated, and by October, the rebellion had been subdued. In the aftermath of this rebellion, the British and Irish parliaments passed the Acts of Union, which formally merged the United Kingdom of Ireland and the Kingdom of Great Britain into the United Kingdom, with the Irish Parliament now part of the United Kingdom Parliament meeting in London. So why is this all important? Well, these events played a direct role in the events of April 1800 in the British colony of Newfoundland. But before we explore that, we need to understand the situation of the Irish in Newfoundland by the end of the 18th century. The Irish had first started arriving in Newfoundland in large numbers in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. They did so because of the demands of Newfoundland's primary industry, fishing. Since the late 16th century, English fishermen from the West Country had been using Newfoundland as a seasonal base to harvest the abundant cod that lived in the oceans around the island. By the 1620s, the first permanently settled English families began to dot the eastern coastline centered around the important port town of St. John's. Much of the supplies and provisions needed to survive in St. John's and elsewhere on the island had to be imported from England. Things like salted meat, butter, bread, etc. all were shipped from England to the island. Now, many of these English merchants would stop over in the Irish south coast ports of Waterford and Cork to take on the necessary supplies. Eventually, these West Country fishing vessels began to recruit young Irish male laborers who would work in Newfoundland seasonally before returning to Ireland. However, soon seasonal migration became permanent settlement and tens of thousands of Irish began to arrive on the island. What's interesting is that the vast majority of the Irish that eventually settled on Newfoundland in the late 18th, early 19th centuries came from a very small region, roughly 50 kilometers surrounding the port of Waterford in what county, you ask? The county of Wexford. As one historian has noted, no other province or state in the Americas drew such an overwhelming proportion of their immigrants from so geographically compact an area in Ireland for so prolonged a period of time. By the end of the 18th century, the Irish Catholic community in St. John's and throughout the island constituted the majority of the population. In St. John's, for instance, something like three-quarters of the population were Irish Catholic. Now, certainly in Newfoundland, there was tension between Catholics and Protestants, like there was in most of the British Empire and elsewhere in the wider world. However, it's important to note that in 1784, Newfoundland's governor, John Campbell, introduced freedom of worship. This was part of a series of reforms in the last decades of the 18th century, which saw increasing rights granted to Catholics within the broader British Empire. Yet, life in Newfoundland was harsh, and it seemed the harshest for the Irish Catholic. Poor living conditions, 
the near constant state of debt of the working class, and of course, the centuries-long tension with Anglo-Protestants ensured that there was tension in areas everywhere where Protestant and Catholics mixed. This tension, coupled with the harsh living conditions, contributed to the events of April 1800. And we'll find out more about this after the break. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Curious Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two bucks or even five bucks to the podcast via Patreon, and you can access all our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. As well, you get bonus content from me personally. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Sign up today. Now, in late 1798 and into 1799, Irish Catholics who had only recently taken part in the unsuccessful rebellion in Ireland began to arrive in Newfoundland escaping the long arm of British justice. Among these were agents working for the Society of United Irishmen, otherwise known as United Men. These agents began to recruit amongst the disaffected members of the Newfoundland Irish Catholic community, and it is estimated that by 1800 the group had several hundred committed members. At the same time, Agents were also recruiting amongst the Irish soldiers of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment of Fencibles. Now, this regiment was composed heavily of Irish Catholics, while its officers were Protestants. As these United Men gained more followers, they began to put together a plot, the details of which are lost to history, but no question it was to seize the town of St. John's if not, the entire colony. Now, the events of the uprising are problematic. There are little to almost no accounts from those who led it or participated in it from the rebel side. Most of the documentary evidence comes from the British or those who were opposed to the United Men. Some of the most detailed accounts come specifically from General John Skerritt, the commander of troops in St. John's. Skerritt had actually served in the 1798 rebellion and played a pivotal role in defeating the rebels at the Battle of Arklau in June 1798, and thus in May of 1799 was promoted to commander of the military in Newfoundland. Most of the telling of the events of April 1800 come from Skerritt, so we must take it with a grain of salt. It would certainly have been in Skerritt's interest to play up the threat in order to get more money, more resources, 
and more men, as well as to enhance his own reputation in putting the uprising down. As an example, in some letters, Skerritt mentions a devious Catholic priest named Father John, who was supposedly a key troublemaker in the region. However, no record of a Father John exists. It's clear that the Irish uprising of 1798 reverberated in Newfoundland and put many people, including Skerritt, and the island's political authority on edge. According to Skerritt, by the end of 1798 and the beginning of 1799, the United Men, who had arrived on the island, had put together an organization, established a leadership directory of five members, and were organizing and preparing for some sort of action. At the same time, Newfoundland Governor William Waldegrave was already quite nervous about the Newfoundland Regiment of Fencibles. In the summer of 1799, he wrote to a member of the British cabinet, the Duke of Portland, saying, and I quote, Your Grace is well acquainted that the whole of these, the Fencibles, are of the Roman Catholic persuasion. As the Royal Newfoundland Regiment had been raised in the island, it is needless of me to endeavor to point out the small proportion the native English bear to the Irish in this body of men. I think it is necessary to mention this circumstance in order to show your grace how little dependence could be placed on the military in case of any civil commotion in the town of St. John's. End quote. It is important to point out, however, that much of the knowledge of the United Men's secret plans came to light because of the Catholic bishop, James O'Donnell, originally from Tipperary. Legend has it that a woman told O'Donnell the plans of the United Men during confession, and O'Donnell then informed the island's authorities. It's estimated that about 400 men were involved in the plot, not just in St. John's, but in various ports along the coast. As Skerritt wrote, and I quote, The management of this conspiracy appears to have been under the direction of the same united men in town, and is of greater extent than I first viewed it. End quote. Skerritt sent troops to various points along the coast, including Placentia, where significant tension between Protestants and Catholics had resulted in violent attacks against one another. Now, the real question is, what was the uprising's plan? The rising itself was set for April 20th, 1800. The intention was that when the Protestant officers of the regiment were at religious services, the soldiers of the regiment would rise up, kill the officers, and seize the town. This, probably, was meant to then trigger a general uprising in the various villages along the coast. But because Skerritt was forewarned about this plan, he cancelled church services that Sunday and instead put the regiment through a series of drills. Those involved in the plot realized it had been discovered and the ringleaders now sought to capture a vessel and flee to the United States. At the same time, others who were involved made their plans to flee into the interior of the island. On the 24th of April, a Sergeant Kelly and 12 men from the regiment, along with six soldiers from an artillery regiment, abandoned their posts. They were armed 
and were soon joined by a couple dozen more deserters, and they all met on the outskirts of St. John's. But before they could carry out whatever plan they were concocting, they were captured. Several other conspirators were also quickly arrested. Once captured, according to Skerritt, the sheriff of St. John's was so scared of a rescue attempt that he quickly tried the men, five of whom were immediately hanged. The rest were sent in chains to Halifax, where three more were hanged, and all the rest were sentenced to penal servitude for life. The uprising was over. It is still not quite clear what the United Men had in mind as their objective, and it's not quite clear what exactly caused them to rise in the first place. This is because there is such little evidence remaining of the voices of the United Men involved. In one of the trials, one defendant claimed they were angry at the fact the Newfoundland authorities forbade soldiers to work in the fishing industry during the summer. As well, some have speculated that the uprising was simply a product of leftover tension from the failed 1798 rebellion in Ireland itself. Now, the uprising did nothing to quell sectarian tension on the island, and the Catholic community continued to advocate for greater rights and equality for Irish Catholics in a British colony. In the years following the uprising, Skerritt continued to claim that insurrections and mutinies were being planned left and right. At one point, he claimed there were 50,000 United men on the island agitating for action, when at the time there were no more than 25,000 people on the island total. One of the fascinating outcomes of this action, event, incident was that Bishop O'Donnell's standing became enhanced within the community. You see, for the British authorities, the Catholic Church had proven loyal to the crown, and the Catholic Church in Newfoundland received thanks from an appreciative government. In fact, as one historian wrote, O'Donnell's handling of the affair cemented an alliance between the government of Newfoundland and the Roman Catholic clergy that was to endure well into the future, end quote. No doubt this relationship played a part in the continued emancipation of Irish Catholics in Newfoundland and a future that would see the island eventually become dominated politically, socially, and economically by the descendants of the Irish Catholics who first made Newfoundland their home. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment we love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.